The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is conversion optimization expert, non-tenant. Go to attentionfevery.com to find out more. Non, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm very glad to be here. Non, how did you get into conversion optimization? Well, I started in web design and moved on from there. I, uh, I started off just as a hobbyist in web design, and I had a friend who needed a, a business website made, and it was going to cost him a lot of money, and I thought to myself, you know, I could do that myself. Um, so that kind of launched me from my dead-end IT job into a, a freelance career. I realized if I could do it for him, I could do it for other people. But at the same time, while I was designing his site, he, he didn't have any words which he could put on the site himself, any copy. And so I started to look into writing copy and writing was something that I had also done for a long time. So I, I found that I just happened to have a, a convergence of skills which were very useful for um, essentially getting people to take an action on the site. And uh, because of my emphasis on copywriting, I found that I was approaching the design of the site not just to make it look pretty, which I think is what most designers do, but to accompany the the message and to support the message so that people would take a particular action um which gradually moved me towards studying direct response copywriting direct response marketing and in the end uh you know read all the john capels and david ogilvy and all the, the classic um direct response copywriters so that i had a, a very clear idea of how exactly you were supposed to move someone from that initial slight nod that they have at the headline to the uh, the nod at the call to action where they actually click the button and do whatever it is that you want them to do. And it sort of snowballed from that point and um, just a case of continued study, really. Okay. If we go over to your website, you talk about something called attention thievery. What's that all about? Well, attention thievery was how I started to think of conversion optimization. Um, it was because my uh, my whole persona as a freelancer was built around this information highwayman.com domain, mm -hmm. and I've got this kind of slightly wild west vibe um, to the website. I I decided to run with that and use a metaphor which would fit into what I was doing and. So I talked about attention thievery, um, essentially just stealing people's attention um, for long enough to get them interested and to essentially keep their attention. So it's it's not just a case of getting their attention to begin with, but it's also a case of continuing to hold their attention. And that really is what the essence of conversion rate optimization is, because if you haven't got someone's attention and you can't keep their attention, then they're obviously not going to become a client or um, even subscribe to whatever it is that you're offering as a, a lead generation in most cases. So it's, conversion optimization is really a case of stealing and keeping people's attention. Would you say most people are struggling with this? Is this a difficult thing to do, Nan? 
It is a difficult thing to do, and one of the big reasons that it's difficult is that people think it's difficult, mm-hmm. when in fact it's not. It's not really rocket surgery. It's something which is fairly easy to do if you don't get tied up in in knots um, thinking about. Uh, and I think copywriters have a lot to um, a lot of blame to to hold on to here. Um, people tend to assume that copywriting is a dark mystic art. Mm-hmm. And that in order to get people's attention, in order to keep their attention, you have to know these very advanced persuasion techniques, these kind of chokeholds and um, joint locks, this copywriting kung fu that only ninjas can do, mm-hmm. which isn't the case at all. Um, and one of the focuses of my work has been to teach ordinary business owners who really aren't interested in conversion optimization itself um, how to keep uh, people's attention in order to sell them more stuff because as long as you know some fairly simple principles, it's actually not all that difficult. Um, and you can learn a lot of that stuff very quickly and you can do a lot of it yourself. And very often it's better to do your own work in terms of copywriting especially um, than to hire a copywriter because you know your product and your audience so much better than a copywriter can, and you know yourself better as well, so you can write as yourself and develop that kind of rapport. And that's obviously something which is particularly important if you're freelancing, um, where you're selling yourself, as it were. Sure, okay. So let's talk about some specifics then about how we can actually do this and improve the response on our website. My first question is, you mentioned on your free report that there are three questions that every page should answer when a visitor lands. So can you run us through that, please? Sure. Um, these are essentially the three questions that your, your prospect is asking when he gets to the page. Now, he's not necessarily asking these consciously, mm-hmm. but if he were to reflect upon what's going on when he arrives, these are questions that you need to answer in order to actually keep him on the page and to keep him reading. So the first question is just, where am I? Uh, you need to make sure that he's oriented on the page. Um, his next question, once he understands where he's gotten to, which is usually uh, he starts by looking at the top left of the, of the page to see what your company name is, and then he scans down and looks at your navigation to see what sort of things the site uh, has on it, and then he looks at the headline to see what the page itself is about. So he's moving from the general to the specific. Mm-hmm. The next question, once he understands that, assuming he does, is what can I do here? What can I do on this particular page? What sort of actions are you wanting me to take? And very often people will arrive on a page, they'll get a basic idea of where they are, and what you'll find is that they don't actually read a lot of the copy. They'll scan down and look for the call to action. Often, of course, the call to action is above the fold, which is a separate issue, but um, they'll try to find that call to action so that they know what it is that you want them to do on the page, and then they'll go back and they'll read some copy to see if they actually want to do it. And that's the third question is, why should I do it? Assuming that we've got a particular element on our page or a particular call to action, something that we want them to look at and see, how do you actually get someone to look where you want them to look on the page? Well, there are a couple of different... uh, There's a sort of minimal approach that you can take, and then there are a couple of advanced techniques that you can use. In the minimalist sense, getting people to look where you want them to look is actually just a case of putting stuff where you know they're going to look. So 
when someone arrives on a page, as I've mentioned, they, they look to the top left corner of the page because they want to find out where they've gotten to. So if you know they're going to be doing that and that they're looking for information about where they are, it only makes sense to put your company name, uh, if you have a good tagline, put your tagline there as well and your logo and so on, in the top left or thereabouts. You can move it to the center sometimes. Um, people can accommodate that. Mm-hmm. But obviously putting it at the, at the bottom of the page or on the right-hand side is probably not a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the same token, when people arrive on a page, um, they're looking for information. They're scanning for information. They're not actually looking to read anything yet. And they're, they're searching for short chunks of text that stand out from the page. And so giving them short chunks of text that stand out from the page in a logical order where the biggest chunk of text is at the top and then you've got smaller chunks underneath, which obviously would be your headline and your subheads, mm-hmm. they're naturally going to gravitate towards those because those are the larger um, and easier to digest pieces of information on the page that will help them to decide whether they want to invest the time in reading everything else. And very often people don't invest the time because it's it's hard. They've got Facebook and they've got YouTube and they want to play their games and watch their videos and, and chat to their friends. They, they have a lot of distractions. And even if it's a business client, you have a lot of other websites competing for their attention. I mean, usually uh, if you're in any kind of B2B, you've got a lot of competitors and you have to assume that if you're not doing this as well as your prospects websites, uh, your competitors websites are, then you could be in trouble because people aren't going to be looking to the right parts of your page in the same way that they're looking to the right parts of your, your competitors pages. A more specific sense, if you want to get a little bit more technical, mm-hmm. there are a couple of tricks that you can use um, to, to guide people's eyes, especially to guide them in ways which they otherwise wouldn't follow. So if you want them to look at a particular part of the page first, for example, um, rather than going straight to your headline, mm-hmm. um, an obvious way of doing this is by using contrast. So, for example, if you have a very bright red box on the right-hand side of your page where people don't normally tend to look, mm-hmm. it will get <clears throat> excuse me a fair amount of attention compared to if you just use a, a plain white background for that part of the page. Other other methods of getting people to look where you want them to are using scannable items, which really just expands on the idea of headlines because people are looking to scan your copy. And the unfortunate truth is that although you might spend a great deal of time on your copy, only about 20% of it's ever going to get read by any given prospect. So using bold to highlight particular phrases that are very important, uh, using lists is very helpful, provided you keep them short, mm-hmm. because people like to quickly scan those sorts of things. And it also really helps to break up the page. Um, one of the big problems that people have is that a lot of their action is governed by this filter in their brain, um, this kind of lizard brain, as many people call it, which decides for them what they're going to do before they even really think about it. So they look at a page. If it's got a long series of uh, a long paragraph of unbroken text, the lizard brain decides that's too hard. And the first thing they do is they scroll. They don't even think about it. They don't think, well, I'll try reading the first sentence. Mm-hmm. They just scroll. Whereas if you break that text into several nice, easy paragraphs, you put a list in the middle. So it sort of breaks it up even more, gives it a lot of visual contrast 
the lizard brain thinks, oh, this is interesting, and it um, jumps into the bits that sort of stand out. But there is actually a third way of getting people to look where you want them to, which you have to use very carefully, but it can be very powerful, and that is by using an image, a reasonably high-quality image, of someone who is relevant to the page. Mm-hmm. So you can't just use... A lot of people use stock photos with, you know, models who are obviously way too pretty or way too happy to actually have anything to do with the business that you are you're running. You need to use someone who's obviously relevant. So it could be someone on your staff. It could be a picture of a customer. Basecamp, for example, do this really well. Um, the important thing is that where their eyes go, your eyes go. So if they're looking at the headline, you will look at the headline. If they're looking at a particularly important piece of copy in a box, for example, you will look at that piece of copy in a box. It's just the way that our minds work. Again, it's that lizard brain directing us before we even know what's happening. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that because images have a heavy weight on pages, they um, they have a lot of drawbacks as well as a lot of uh, good things going on so you can use them to direct people's ipath for example but they also take a while to load so on mobile devices they can be a liability um, for every point one of a second that your page takes to load you can lose one um, percent of your conversions they also tend to be something people don't look at first surprisingly um, web designers assume that everyone wants to see pretty graphics when they go to a web page this isn't the case at all in fact what we find is that when we look at the research, when we do eye tracking studies and so on, what people look for when they come to a web page is text, and they actually ignore the images until they figure that they're worth looking at because the text has told them so. So there's a trade-off to be had with images, but if you can find a good image that is reasonably high quality, is relevant, um, conveys value in some way, and has a person looking at an important piece of copy, that can be a very powerful way of directing their eye path without them even realizing Okay, let's dive a little bit deeper on the subject of images. What kind of images are going to help us increase conversions? Well, I always say that there's only one kind of image that you want on your site, and that's an image which conveys value in a way that copy can't. Now, you can interpret that a little bit loosely. For example, if you have an image which is relevant to the copy, um, an image of a person, which isn't directly conveying value but is moving people to look at a piece of copy that they otherwise might not, that's emphasizing value in a way that the copy itself couldn't because um, people are looking at that piece of copy, uh, whereas before they wouldn't have. The copy itself couldn't achieve that. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, um, what I mean is any kind of image that you put on your page, any kind of graphic or picture or whatever the case may be, um, it needs to demonstrate something in a way that the copy cannot. So a a great example is a before and after shot. Mm -hmm. Those are used in weight loss. Uh, I I can't even think of a a weight loss campaign I've seen that hasn't used one, and there's a good reason for that. They work extremely well. They're very, very powerful ways of showing a very uh, a very credible form of proof. You can just say, hey, you know, before I was um, 600 pounds and now I'm 200 pounds, but it's much more believable if you show them an actual picture. Mm-hmm. A similar kind of situation is with graphs, um, graphs, charts, uh, any kind of situation where you're trying to deal with numbers, where you're trying to show people statistics or results. 
um, very difficult to make that interesting or quick to absorb if you just write it down. Whereas if you show someone a, a line moving upwards and another line moving downwards and say, hey, that one going up is ours and that one going down is the average of our competitors, that's very quick to, to understand and to take in mm-hmm. and very powerful way of uh, conveying value. What doesn't convey value, though, is, as I mentioned, stock photographs. Stock photographs tend to reduce conversions and trust because people know that those people don't work for you. They they subconsciously think, hey, I'm, I'm being a little bit hoodwinked here. There's something going on. And IBM did a study where they, they replaced the stock photos on their pages with uh, photos of people who actually work for IBM and found that their conversion rates went up, even though those people weren't as attractive uh, the images were relevant because they were people who actually worked for IBM, so it, it made sense to have them on the page. And they weren't deceitful in any way because, again, the people worked for IBM and they weren't just, you know, photos of models who've been taken off of some site where you pay a royalty to use their picture. Other forms of graphics can be kind of up in the air. Um, obviously, showing shots of your product, if you've got a physical product, it's very important to have high-quality pictures of that if you're selling online. Um, But a lot of web designers use abstract kinds of graphics and, you know, fancy backgrounds and so on on pages, which don't necessarily make any difference. Um, They can make the page better to look at. And if you are making the page better to look at, making it more beautiful, uh, and you're doing it in a way that it's not just designers who think it's more beautiful, but you've actually talked to people who don't do web design, people who represent your average customer, and they think that, yeah, this is a really attractive site. That's actually quite important as well because it conveys a kind of false value. Um, I hesitate to use the word false because value is something which is purely conceived in the mind, so mm-hmm. any kind of value is really value. But it's not related to your product. It's just related to how people feel about your site. And the halo effect is incredibly powerful in this regard. Uh, It's the same as people judge websites in exactly the same way they judge faces. When we meet someone who is attractive, um, who has a a face that we like to look at, we assume that person is intelligent and trustworthy. When we meet someone who is unattractive, we assume that that person is a bit of a dullard and possibly don't um, leave your purse lying around uh, near that person because chances are it will disappear. It's irrational. Mm-hmm. But it's the way that our lizard brain works. Once again, the lizard brain is in control. And the same is true on websites. If you have a website which is very attractive and, and looks good, people actually think that it's easier to use, even when it's not. They also think that it's more trustworthy. They think that it's um, more credible. They think that the product is going to be better, and so your conversion rates tend to go up. So if you can use graphics to increase the attractiveness of your website without sacrificing too much load time, that can often be a good way of going as well. What about videos? In general, do you use much video on websites? It's a good question because I personally don't, but I'm in no way opposed to using video because the truth is that, um, especially on things like uh, I've seen webinar registration pages, video sales letters, that kind of thing, uh, video can be very powerful. It can definitely increase conversions. I'm I'm working with a, a chap in real estate at the moment who is having a tough time increasing his conversion rate on his page. And he's discovered that putting a video on his page reduced the conversion rate, but putting the video on his page and having it autoplay increased the conversion rate. And it's simply because when people see a video, they don't tend to click it to play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's playing already, however, they 
tend to get sucked in, and as, as long as the opening is good, it's easier than reading copy. They just sit there and listen and watch the nice graphics go. So video can be very powerful, and I don't really do video because it's not my area of expertise. Um, I'm a little bit obsessive about doing everything myself, so because I can't do video, I, I just don't use it. That's not necessarily the best approach to take. You shouldn't necessarily do as I do. You might want to do as I say. Mm-hmm. Um, video is definitely a good approach to use. The one thing that I would say, uh, apart from obviously you need to test, uh, you can never know until you test. Sometimes video will reduce your conversion rate. But the one thing that I would say is that at the moment I'm seeing this this uh, fad going on, which I think may have started with lead pages, mm-hmm. where people are using these opt-in pages which have a video playing as the background. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty skeptical about that um, because of the fact that movement is so distracting to us because it's another part of our lizard brain when we see something move um, we need to be able to know is that a cheetah that's going to eat us or is it just a buffalo <laughs> when we see movement on the internet that same part of our brain kicks in and so we're constantly distracted by it from looking at the copy that we're supposed to be reading mm-hmm. so I'm I'm waiting until the results are in with regard to videos, uh, the video background opt-in pages to see if those actually increase conversions my suspicion is most of the time they probably won't and as time goes on, it'll get worse because of the fact that it's no longer new and interesting. Yeah, I saw that as well. It's something that they released a little while back, and I saw it and thought, yeah, that would definitely be cool to try out, but it's it's also interesting to hear your take on it as well. So I think what I'll do is I'll give it a test, and you know, I'll report back to you what happens with the results. Okay, moving on to another topic. You mentioned in an article that clarity trumps persuasion. I'm wondering, first of all, why does clarity Trump persuasion and number two do you have any tips for writing clear copy definitely well the reason that clarity trumps persuasion is simply that writing clearly is much easier than writing persuasively um i could put that another way and say that writing clearly just is persuasive Mm -hmm. whereas trying to write persuasively often ends up not being clear The number one complaint that people have on the internet, if you look at studies which are done by people like Jacob Nielsen and um, Brent Coker, who are usability experts, the number one problem people have is not with, you know, navigation or site structure or anything like that. The problem is that they can't find the information that they want on the websites that they go to. That is the number one complaint is I can't find enough information. And, that usually starts with the headline. I mean, how many headlines have you seen that try to be clever or witty and end up just being incomprehensible? You don't know what they're saying, so you don't know why you should read the rest of the site. Starting with your headline, all you need to do is tell your prospect what the page is about and why he should read it. Essentially, you need to imply a promise of some kind of value. So if you're selling... Um, oh, I don't know, tractors. Mm-hmm. Figure out what it is that your prospects are coming to the page for, because it might not just be to buy tractors. You have to understand how they're getting there. Uh, maybe they've been searching for some kind of um, particular feature of tractors. If they're searching for a particular feature of the tractors, you talk about that feature in your headline. Uh, if they're just looking to 
buy a new tractor because their old one is clapped out, you talk about that in your headline. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It's incredibly simple, but people think that because it's copywriting, it must be hard. Mm-hmm. And so they try to incorporate all these advanced persuasion techniques, and they they try to read people like uh, you know all the great copywriters, Clayton Mapiece and John Capel, and um, they they get tied in knots trying to be persuasive when all they have to do is be clear because all their prospects are looking for is clear information that will help them make a decision about buying something. In terms of actually, you asked for specific techniques that you can use. Mm-hmm. One of the main things that I would say is that, especially on corporate websites, I think it's probably less of a problem for some startups, although startups have their own issues um, with not having any copy after the headline. But definitely with more corporate websites, and I think this rubs off on freelancers who feel like they need to sound the same way, the huge problem they have is using terms which basically mean nothing because they're so abstract. So you see terms like the leading provider, um, innovation, uh, implementation, all these kinds of words that have obvious Latin origins. They come from the Latin language. They're all very vague. They sound impressive because they're long and they're kind of technical sounding because they're from Latin, uh, which is the language of science, but they don't really mean anything. And the, the problem with them is that you just can't create a picture of them in your head. Whereas if you use words which we use in everyday conversation, like the words that I'm using right now, most of them, uh, they may derive from Latin in some instances, but often they derive from Anglo-Saxon. So they're short, um, they're basically the, the words of barbarians. Mm-hmm. They were designed to convey things like kill and eat and those sorts of things. And they work much better for forming images in our mind. And if you can form an image in your prospect's mind, if you can give him concrete words, simple concrete words that he can actually imagine, that goes a hugely long way towards uh, increasing clarity because what is clarity if not the ability to see something in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, Non. I mean, one thing I hate personally is those corporate-style websites. I can't stand reading project management solutions and so on. You know, I don't even know what that even means. So I guess it's just everyday language that we should be using instead, isn't it? Yeah, use the language that your prospect would use. Don't try to sound smarter than your prospect because he won't like it. All right, on to a different topic. Are there any best or favorite fonts that you like to use on a website and do fonts even make a difference from a conversion optimization point of view? It's funny. People always, the first question I get asked usually is, should I use a sans serif or a serif font? And the the answer is actually, it doesn't matter. Plenty of studies have shown that, you know, sans serif is better. Other studies have shown that serif is better. They've done uh, one really decent study. Those studies were all mostly flawed, the one decent study on the issue um, by a chap whose name I forget now, unfortunately, is that there really is no difference. The, the key is not actually whether the font has little feet and um, bits sticking off it or whether it's a, a nice, clean-looking font like Arial. The, the difference is, is the font big enough? That's the number one complaint that people have is that the font's too small, and most web designers, even today, are still setting fonts at about 12, 13, 14 pixels, which is too small. Uh, It needs to be at least 16 pixels. 
Okay. And you can actually, if you Google 16 pixels for body copy, you'll find an article which I wrote some time ago for Smashing Magazine, which was highly controversial and uh, generated your your standard kind of uh, very polarized response. But that article outlines exactly why you need to be setting your, your fonts nice and big. The second issue is, is the font design to be displayed on a screen or not? Because there are plenty of fonts which were designed um, before the computer era, which are very beautiful fonts. You print them out, they look great. But because of the fact that they have very frail letter forms or uh, very tall, what's called an X height, so the, the stems of the letters are very long compared to the bowls, um, they tend to be very difficult to read on the screen. Uh, the, the shapes just don't convert well when you've got uh, a set number of pixels that you need to use to render them. So you need to find fonts which have been designed for the screen, and there are many, many fonts that uh, have been designed for the screen that look really good. I mean, if you're in doubt, you can always use Arial or Georgia. Those are like the classic um, pre, pre-web font era fonts that you can still use. Mm-hmm. But you can also use... Uh, Google has an enormous range of quite good fonts uh, on their website now. Uh, if you go to, I think it's google.com slash fonts, uh, you can also use systems like Typekit or Font Squirrel. Um, there are plenty to choose from, but it's a good idea to test them on different screens and you know make sure they look good on mobile, make sure they look good on a big screen, make sure they look good on a small screen, and, and ideally test them with your prospects, uh, with your target market, make sure that they can read them okay. Okay. I guess that doesn't really answer your question because you asked me for my own favorites. I'd prefer to to give you some good principles. In terms of my own favorites, though, um, I'm very fond of a font called Open Psalms. Okay. Uh, I'm also very fond of a font called Merryweather, uh, which was created by a guy called Evan Sorkin, which uh, is the main font that I'm using at the moment. So you can you can take those two. Cool, okay. And that would be for the main body copy of a website. Sometimes I use uh, defont.com. I don't know if you've ever been on there at all, but it's basically got all sorts of kinds of crazy stuff. You know, I guess there's lots of fonts that they have that you definitely wouldn't want to use. The more sort of crazy out there ones that you wouldn't want to use for, uh, you know, maybe just it would be okay for something like a logo, but not for the main body copy of a website. So I guess coming back to what you said earlier about clarity, we're looking for a clear font. Would that be true? At least when it comes to our website's main font. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of fonts which are designed to be cursive or decorative or display fonts, which you definitely wouldn't use for body copy because they just wouldn't be readable. But they make great fonts for logos. Some of them make great fonts for headlines as well. Um, you can find some good fonts uh, on Defont or on, on Google Web Fonts or on Font Squirrel or Typekit, which you definitely wouldn't use to set large amounts of text that you're going to have to read. Mm-hmm. But they work really well. They stand out really well um, for a one- or two-line headline, for example, where the, the size is quite large comparatively. My next question is, does the number of columns that we use on a web page matter? It does to some extent. Um, it, it matters especially for body copy because if you have uh, – and this is something I see quite a lot on home pages in particular – People have a tendency to create pages where they they have several different things they want to say, mm-hmm. and they decide that the best way to do it is to put the to put them side by side. So they have three things to say, so they create three columns to say each, and they kind of make them about the same length so it looks good. And as a general rule, that's a bit like walking into a business and having three receptionists greet you at the same time. It's 
rather difficult to to make out what each one is saying and to know which one to listen to. Mm-hmm. However, while you normally want a single column for body copy, once you've got your prospect's attention and he knows that he's got to read it, uh, he knows what you're talking about, the headline's got his attention, he knows he wants to read on, you want to have a, a single column of body copy with a single left-hand margin because that's where his eye keeps going back to, so it makes it much easier to read if the margin doesn't move around. On a home page uh, or a directory page, a home page sometimes can be a directory page where you're basically telling people where to go before they read body copy. So your your company might do three different things. So you've got three different prospects coming to your home page. And that complicates things. And you do sometimes find that using three columns of text is the best approach there. The important thing is not to have a single headline with three columns of copy underneath, but to have three columns each with their own very clear headline. And often using images in situations like this can be very powerful because you can use an icon, which is immediately understandable to help to visually differentiate each piece. Uh, So people can, you know, if you sell tractors and and trailers and boats, having a picture of a tractor, trailer and a boat above each of the three columns makes far more sense than just saying tractors, trailers and boats. So it helps to, uh, to lead people visually to where they want to go. Okay, how about sidebars? For example, on a blog, often you've got either on the right or the left-hand side next to the main body copy, you've got a sidebar with opt-in boxes or adverts or whatever. Is that acceptable or is that detracting from things? Well, adverts will always tend to detract because adverts are designed to get attention. Uh, So I think there's always a trade-off with ads. Uh, If you need to have them, you need to have them, but ideally you wouldn't. Opt-in boxes are a bit of a different issue. I wouldn't call them a column uh, exactly. I mean, it it is true that if you've got a single column of copy on your blog and you've got a sidebar, that's a two-column layout. Mm -hmm. But what you don't have is two columns of body copy. What you normally would have, especially in terms of the design, is a column of body copy and an obviously separate box, which you can use to perform some other action, which is uh, related to the copy. And that's actually quite a good way of doing things because uh, if if for no other reason than people have come to expect it, it's become a standard. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a page and it's got a, a column of text and then on the right-hand side you see a box, you think, oh, yeah, that box is probably some kind of action that I can take. So if I like what says in the text, mm-hmm. I can sign up to get some more of that. Okay. That's a good way of doing things. Um, but you don't want the, the sidebar to compete too heavily with the, the body copy, so you need to make sure that it's visually distinct enough that people don't get confused about which one to read first. How about colours? Do colours matter? And if they do, what kinds of colours do you find work best? Colours are very important, but the the problem with colours is that there isn't any particular colour which is very important. Mm-hmm. It's more how you use your colours. So there are a couple of basic rules for colors. First of all, don't ever set your text on a black or a dark background. Mm -hmm. So if you're using white text on a dark background, it's very hard to read compared to using dark text on a white background. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want your website to look more or less like a book in terms of its colors um, for body copy. The second important thing is that you want your color use to be limited and consistent. So you don't want to use a huge range of colors because it's confusing. People expect colors to mean certain things. Uh, 
And if you use lots and lots of colors, they assume that it means lots and lots of things, and they don't know what, and it confuses them and makes them anxious. I mean, when people are anxious, they tend not to buy things. Mm-hmm. So you want to, as a general rule, select two main colors and then a highlight color um, and possibly another color to go with it. Um, so if you were using, for example, two shades of blue, you could then have a highlight in orange and a highlight in white. Uh, that would be a, a pretty good color palette. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that you're using those colors consistently. So if you're using the dark blue for all of your headlines, then you make sure you use it for all of your headlines so everyone knows that dark blue is a headline. If you're using the orange for links, you want to make sure that orange text is always a link. Or that orange text, which isn't a link, is obviously not a link because it's much bigger, it hasn't got an underline, it's in a different font, or whatever the case may be. It's on a different side of the page. Um, That kind of situation. In terms of picking your colors, though, that's really up to your brand, what sort of colors uh, work well for you. You can have a look online. There are infographics which list uh, what people's favorite colors tend to be and what people tend to associate colors with. So, for example, using red for a call to action, you might think that's a great idea because red is associated with passion and desire. Uh, unfortunately, red is also associated with danger. And when it comes to actions, uh, when it comes to taking an action, red is more associated with danger than with passion. So, for example, red lights, stop streets, and so on. Um, you have to take an action, and the red means stop. So using red on a call to action means stop, which is why red doesn't tend to work well on calls to action. The thing is, there are exceptions to every rule. Mm-hmm. So... It's not that red will never work well. It's just that orange is usually better because it's the second brightest color. It gets attention really well, but it doesn't have that same connotation. However, using orange on your whole website is not necessarily a great idea because most people don't like the color orange all that much. That said, you might find that orange separates your um, your website really well from competitors or it reflects your brand really well, in which case it's worth the trade-off. Um, as I say, there are no best colors, but there, there are um, ways that you will find that the colors will work best on your site. The only way to really know is to test it. Sure. I guess people are getting better at this slightly over the years. I remember back in the early 2000s, late 90s, those GeoCity days. I mean, there were all sorts of colors, like you said, black websites with white writing and all sorts of long, chunky paragraphs and just really ugly. Some kind of strange horizontal rainbow line. (laughs) Yeah, if I see a website like that, I think, wow, they've probably not updated this since 1995 and I'm basically out of there, you know, regardless of what they could have said to me. Very much so. Yeah, it could have the best headline ever. I'm just not going to be reading it. I'm out of there. But... To be honest with you, they're pretty much gone now. Most of those kind of websites, you don't see them very often these days. No, you don't. Um, Every now and then, there is an archive of really bad websites on the web somewhere, uh, which is always fun to look at. But as a general rule, I think that anyone who's doing business on the internet has kind of moved on. You'll still find a lot of pretty bad websites which follow similar kinds of layouts and so on, but they're usually not overtly terrible in terms of their colors. What elements can we include on our website to increase trust? 
Well, one of the big ones is a, a photograph, and that's something which you'll see in uh, classic direct response mailers. They, they often include a picture of the guy who's writing at the beginning of the letter. Uh, this is me, and that's just because, again, our lizard brain connects with faces, and when we see someone's face, we feel like we know them better, and so that solidifies a sense of relationship. Even though we have no actual relationship with that person, we feel like we do because we know what they look like. Um, similar thing happens in movies. You know, um, I was originally going to marry Natalie Portman, for example. <laughs> Don't know her, have no idea what she's like, but there it is. Um, another element that you can use, especially works well after calls to action, when people are kind of lingering on that call to action and they're not quite sure, they're sitting on the fence. A great way to, to push them over the fence and to get them to click is to use... Um, logos from companies which you have worked for or been featured on, assuming that they're famous companies, uh, those kinds of things often work really well at that point because people are thinking, uh, should I, shouldn't I, I don't really know this guy. And then they see, hey, he's worked for Coca-Cola and Nike. Well, he must be pretty awesome, and, I, and they click the link. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a similar vein, you can also use testimonials. Those are quite powerful in some cases. I, I'm... Not quite as sold on testimonials as some other copywriters are. It it does depend on your industry. And there is a perception, especially in some industries, uh, the internet marketing industry is probably one of them, Mm -hmm. that testimonials are just made up. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, on my website uh, at at attentionthievery.com, I do have testimonials there at the bottom of the page. But I picked ones which strongly reflect uh, the the key unique selling proposition which I've identified by talking to my customers, which is basically that I'm no bullshit. Mm-hmm. You can edit that out if you need to. <laughs> and I, I don't use any of that kind of language in my copy, but in the testimonials, I've actually picked ones that all use colorful language, specifically so people can see these <laughs> probably are real because he wouldn't have just made this up. Okay. So as long as your testimonials are realistic, um, definitely don't use testimonials that have a picture of, you know, some stock photo attached to them, which people know isn't actually the person that was sending you the testimonial. If you're going to use pictures, use their actual photo. Um, but those are those are three trust elements that work pretty well. Okay, cool. Um, one thing, I don't know if this is the right answer or not, Non, but I always include in a testimonial a picture of the person. Obviously, like you said, not a stock picture. It's a real picture of that person and also their website. So if someone ever wanted to, and, and I don't think anyone's actually probably ever gone and done this, but if they really wanted to, they could actually go and find out about that person and actually see that they're a genuine person that I worked with. Would, would you say that that's generally a good idea to do that? It can be a good idea. Um, what I, I used to do that on my main website, um, mm-hmm. in fact, I may still do that on my main website because I haven't updated it for a good long time. Sure. But my concern with putting people's websites on the testimonial is that it gives them a link to click, which takes them away from your page. Mm-hmm. And that can lead to lost conversions. Um, in my case, I don't actually have anything like that, and that's because the the testimonials that I gathered are from an anonymous Google form. Uh, I sent out a, a survey using Google Docs, and um, I have no idea who entered the responses, so I can't actually put anything like that. So I just I just say straight up in the copy, I have no idea who said these because it was an anonymous survey, but you can check it out and see if it's true yourself by signing up. Mm-hmm. If you are going to include information, I think it's a good idea because it tells you 
that this person has specific details about the person who gave the testimonial, mm-hmm. um, which are harder to make up. Um, I mean, in a way, it's not really true. You can make up a name and an address just as easily as anyone. Yeah. But because the name and the address is there, people tend to assume that it's not made up. It's a specific detail that adds credibility. Mm-hmm. So putting that kind of thing in definitely does help. Um, I would probably type the URL just as plain text and not have it as a link. Yeah. So people can see the sites there, but they can't click on it to go away from your page and not sign up to whatever it is that you want them to sign up to. Okay, my final question was uh, a lot of this stuff, Non, I'm sure that you actually found out through rigorous testing. So what do you use to split test and actually find out what colors are working better, what fonts are working better? What tools would you recommend for that? It's funny, actually, because there are a number of tools and I haven't actually tested most of them in much detail. And the reason for that is that I have a very non-mathematical mind. I take a very heuristic approach to conversion optimization. I learn principles and I learn to apply those principles in copy and in design. And usually what I do is I get other people to do the testing for me. So I I do the work for, um, for a business and and they'll have analytics set up and they'll tell me, you know, this design worked well and this design didn't. So I actually have relatively little involvement in the analytics side because it's not my strong point. Mm -hmm. However, I do have some familiarity with Google analytics. Um, I use that myself. It's not the easiest system to use, but it is free, which has a significant advantage and it has gotten a lot better in recent years because they've been essentially updating the interface and the, the features to compete with other, uh, other, other offerings which have been uh, advancing over the years. I also have a pretty good relationship with Unbounce. Um, I think their product is really good if you're wanting to actually build a, a landing page that you can test and it's all in one place. Uh, you don't have to worry about using anything else. It's all just there. You can do it. It's nice and easy. Lead Pages also has quite a good reputation among some people that I trust. I haven't used it myself, mm-hmm. and I have my reservations about it. Um, I think that some of their marketing material is a little bit what we in IT used to call cowboys, um, people who who kind of shoot from the hip and don't test as rigorously and aren't quite as thorough as they should be. But, for example, Ian Brody uses lead pages very successfully, and he swears by it. And I tend to take what Ian says pretty seriously, so it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, and Visual Website Optimizer is the other one that springs to mind, uh, which has a very good reputation as especially being easy to use uh, and having a good feature set that allows you to split test easily. Very cool. Awesome. Non, thank you so much for being on the call today. You've been really generous with all the info that you've shared. Where can we get more of this kind of stuff? Well, I have a free email micro course, which covers some of the stuff and actually goes into detail on some other stuff as well, which you can grab at attentionthievery.com. And um, if you want more, then unfortunately, as I'm running a business, you do have to pay. But if you sign up at attentionthievery.com, you can find out how to do that. Well, it's well worth it. And to make more sales on your website, it's something that's going to pay for itself. Indeed. Um, Excellent. That brings to an end today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And Non, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, 
increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.